2013 was something else. Everything from sinkholes, swallowing up people in their homes and roads, to hurricanes, earthquakes in this part of Texas, to wars and rumors of wars and more school shootings, more problems. But keep in mind, it was 2013 because of the resurrection. While we measure time based on the resurrection. He who overcame says, be of good cheer. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Amen. So he is the one we need to see us through no matter what happens. Our community last year even saw dozens of homes destroyed by tornadoes. But we're still here. We're still singing. We're still worshiping. We're still helping people that need help. Be it typhoons, tsunamis, or unexpected calamities, or economic collapse. With Him, we can make it. With Him, everything's going to work out. With Him, the story is never over. All we need is You, Lord. Lord, we just take our fears... Let's take all our fears and symbolically hold our hands up. We give you all our fears for 2014, and we declare your victory, your supremacy, your lordship, and your reigning in every situation. Lord, we're going to trust you. You're what we really need. We're going to trust you and do what we know to do and leave the rest with you, Lord. In Jesus' name. All I need is you, Lord. trust our lives to you, our children to you, our destiny to you, our church to you, our career to you, our finances to you, our families to you, our relationships to you, Lord. We declare 2014 is your year, Lord. We're going to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give the Lord some praise. Thank you.
and said to one another, You see, we are not succeeding at all. Look, the whole world is following him. Some Greeks were among those who had gone to Jerusalem to worship during the festival. They went to Philip, he was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. And the two of them went and told Jesus. known as the Palm Sunday story. It's recorded here in John 12. But also in the other three Gospels, you'll find this story in Mark 11, Luke 19, and Matthew 21. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you to speak to us today. Give us a vision of you that we've not had before. Help us discover more of your unsearchable riches. In Jesus' name, amen. John begins a story here in verse 12 talking about a great multitude coming to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover, which lasts about a week. And Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem. And as he was going, they began to wave palm branches and cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. These palm branches were imported from Jericho because there weren't many palm trees in the Jerusalem area to spare enough leaves for a festival. I mean, as many festivals as they had, there wouldn't be any trees left if they did that. So they brought these palm branches with them. And Mark says that they also cut branches down out of the trees and laid these things at Jesus' feet as he would come into the city, as well as their outer garments, waving them in the wind, shouting Hosanna, and laying them down before him. Verse 14 says, Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, according to the other three Gospels, Jesus purposely sent his disciples to find this donkey. So he had some help in finding it. And according to Matthew, it wasn't just a donkey. It was a donkey colt that had never been ridden. That was according to Luke and Mark. But according to Matthew, it included the donkey's mama. So the Jenny donkey came with her colt or her foal, and Christ rode on the foal. Now, according to Matthew, it looks like he rode on both of them at the same time because what Matthew says is they put their clothes on the donkeys and Jesus rode on them. The pronoun them refers to the clothes, not to the donkeys. Now, maybe he rode the mama donkey first to get the baby donkey accustomed to seeing what mama was doing and then with mama being beside the donkey the colt submitted to jesus more readily what jesus was doing was exercising his authority as well as blessing the man who loaned him the donkey when the man got his donkey back the donkey had been ridden on already and broke here in the first service was lanny leach lanny and kathy are members here lanny breaks horses he's kind of a horse whisperer last year he won third place in a national contest where they took wild Mustangs and worked with them for 180 days and then rode them in a contest. And uh, I saw a little video footage of this formerly wild Mustang 
in six months, totally tamed and rideable, up and down ramps, doing different feats to show that it had been tamed. So Lanny kind of knows what he's talking about. I says, is it easy to tame a donkey, to break a donkey? He says, it's about as hard as a horse. And he said he suspected this mother donkey by her baby helped Jesus get this donkey to submit. Now, this was a very, very brave thing on Jesus' part because he wasn't just riding this donkey in a corral somewhere, but in the middle of a crowd, thousands of people. Now, you may think donkeys are meek little creatures. They look cute, don't they? But farmers keep them out there with their goats because they can whip up on some coyotes. Is Brian McComer here? Him and Lonnie can tell you about donkeys. They, they tried to get an unbroke donkey into a horse trailer, and that thing bit the fire out of Brian's leg. Brian was limping for days with a bruise. So an unbroke donkey can do some damage. But here, Jesus demonstrates his authority, his royalty, and his wisdom by riding on this donkey into Jerusalem. And they quote Zechariah. 9, 9, this is, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So things began to make sense later. You know, in your journey with Christ, things may not always make sense, but hold on. Hold on. Things will make sense later. That's the best thing about good stories. There's the conflict that happens and then the resolution that comes. God came in the flesh to bring resolution to man's problems. But first there had to be conflict with the enemy of God for our sakes. Verse 17, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. So there's people out on the street saying, hey, here he is. Here's the one that raised up Lazarus from the dead. We were there to see it. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now they were steamed. According to Matthew, he didn't just ride into the city. He went to the temple and cleaned house, just like he did in the earlier part of his ministry. A lot of people don't realize Jesus cleansed that temple twice. The first part of John, he did it. He cleaned house. And what they did was they set up money-making ventures selling sacrificial animals and materials to people who journeyed from out of town. And they set it up in the temple, which was in, in the part of the temple that was to be for Gentiles to come and observe their worship because they were to be a light to the nations. They crowded out the Gentiles with this bazaar they had set up. And Jesus went in and cleared it out. Well, here in the final days of his life, he goes and does it again. So you know it infuriates him. Not only does he cleanse the temple, Matthew says he heals the blind and the lame. And people are shouting his praises. So they're steamed. And here in verse 19, they says, look, the whole world has gone after him. And I love how that John includes verse 20. Some Greeks showed up. But they had said, even though they may have thought they were exaggerating, actually began to take place. The people from Greece showed up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip and said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Matthew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And that's where our video clip ended. So great! Jesus, it's time to be glorified. It was great. But he wasn't going to make a quantum leap. 
from that day to his glorification. There was humiliation to walk through first. Look at verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. I sound like I'm sounding like Charles Stanley. If anyone loves me, let him come after me. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So before being honored by the Father, there's a laying down of our life. You see that? The time's come for the Son of God to be glorified. Why does he say that? He's got his eyes on the prize. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He knew that he wasn't being naive. He knew there was a mess to walk through. And he's emphasizing that for us to receive honor from the Father, sometimes there's junk we got to walk through. Now my soul is troubled. All right, now he's dealing with present reality. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. That's his father speaking. There's a couple other occasions where a voice from heaven spoke. One was at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And another occasion was on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter was trying to institute a religion for Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, listen to him. In other words, Peter, hush. Listen. So if you're hearing audible voices, you better pay attention. Therefore, verse 29, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Some people will always are determined to be unbelieving. That was just a coincidence. That was just thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die, who should be crucifixion. I want you to notice he talks about him being glorified and Father, glorify your name, because he came in his Father's name, and the Father audibly saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So Jesus, being the Son of God, already was glorious, but for what he was going to go through, he was going to come through more glorious, resurrected. You see that? So the Father speaks of his present glory, but points to his future glory. And Jesus said, this voice didn't come for me, but it came for you. And then he declares, now the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. In his body, on the cross, he took the judgment for the world. He paid the fine. He took the punishment. He experienced the penalty 
He embraced our execution. John R. Stott says, when we sin, we substitute ourselves for God. When God saves, he substituted himself for us. So he is glorified, but there was humiliation to walk through there by judging the sins of the world in his own body on the tree. You see that? And he points to the tree by saying, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Now, when we lift the Lord up, it's for a different reason. It's not to crucify him. It's to lift his name up. It's to praise him. It's to give him glory that he's worthy of. It's to recognize what he has done. It is paid. It is finished. He doesn't have to do it again. It's paid once and for all. If he paid for your sins once and for all, what are you doing running around beating yourself up for your past? What are you doing running around beating others up for their past? He died for their sins. Jesus loves a person we can't stand just as much as he loves us. We need to nail that part of ourselves and realize that sin that Jesus died for, that dislike we have for others. He died for our bitterness too. He was wounded for our transgressions, that is our acts of rebellion, and bruised, wounded inwardly, for our iniquities, our bitternesses, our lusts, our envies, our dislike for people that were created in his image. I'd like to speak to you today on the title, Jesus is the Humble King. Can we say that? Zechariah 9, 9 was a verse he fulfilled this day, Palm Sunday. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Yes, our king humbled himself and came as a pawn, as it were to checkmate the devil, to put a check on our sins, to change our lives, he changed his. Jesus is the humble king. There's three qualities of great leaders, and they all three basically are saying the same thing. Great leaders are not weak, nor are they harsh. Great leaders are both powerful and humble, and great leaders have been humbled and exalted. Jesus is a great leader who's also humble. A great leader is one that has power to lead, has authority, and the power to back up that authority, but also the humility to not destroy people with that power and that authority. The balance, the mix, this is Jesus. What we see in North Korea, power and authority for, what, three generations now? No humility, just pride and arrogance and cruelty. Not good. That's not godly leadership. Godly leadership is also not being a milk toast, not being fearful, not exercising the authority you have to help people out of fear of the polls or out of fear of offending somebody. That's not good leadership either. The balance of the two. So Christ comes, humble king, on an unbroken donkey. But he's coming back on a white horse with a sword and the armies of heaven. Same king. He's not on the cross anymore. 
and he's certainly not in the manger, and he's not riding nobody's donkey. It won't be a borrowed horse. It will be his. Jesus is the humble king. Here is a humble leader, had humble beginnings, born in a log cabin, learned to write with pieces of charcoal on the backside of a flat shovel, came from nothing, all the way to the White House, led our nation through its darkest hour. We lost more people during his regime than all our wars combined. And we esteem him highly because he didn't violate his office. He didn't violate the Constitution. He stayed within the bounds of law and kept the union together and freed the slaves. It's known he didn't set out to say, I'm going to free the slaves. He just set out to say, I'm going to limit the increase of slavery. The regions aren't going to grow. They're not going to get any more slaves. He's going to limit them. And the South got mad and pulled out completely and attacked. And so the war happened to keep the Union together. And in the midst of that war, he took advantage of the opportunity and exercised his authority for the Emancipation Proclamation. And we see the results of that ongoing around the world and even continuing in our nation with people gaining their rights more and more. Here's a more contemporary hero of mine. Everything in his past wasn't perfect, but I'm telling you, when he came through his hour of humiliation, 27 years in prison, he was a wise man. He came out speaking Afrikaans, a language that he hated when he went into prison. Took advantage of the opportunity to learn everything he could learn about his enemy. Learned all about rugby. And when he gave his first speech, he gave it in Afrikaans. And what could have been an ugly bloodbath became a wonderful thing. And all South Africans love this man of every race. And trust me, if you weren't pure European, you didn't want to live in South Africa before this man came along. Thank God for Ronald Reagan and the pressure he began to put on de Klerk to get the ball rolling, to get this man free. And so the world honors him because he's a man that got the power, but he had the humility. Jesus, we want to be humble and we want to exercise the power that you've given us with wisdom without being afraid. Jesus is the humble king. One of my favorite vineyard songs, sung by a South African, Brenton Brown. He wrote this song, Oh, kneel me down again here at your feet. Show me how much you love humility. Oh, spirit, be the star that leads me to the humble heart of love. I see in you. You are the God of the broken, the friend of the weak. You wash the feet of the weary, embrace the ones in need. And I want to be like you, Jesus, to have this heart in me. You are the God of the humble. You are the humble king. You are the God of the humble. You are the humble king. Hebrews 2, verse 17 says, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren. In everything, he had to be made like us. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, that means full payment, for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, 
He is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, he was tempted to sin, but he never yielded to sin. So he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be tested, defiled, tortured, killed, unjustly accused, slandered. He knows what it's like. Not just because he's God and is omniscient and is hyper-intelligent and knows everything, but by experience. Emotionally, he knows what it's like. That's why we can go boldly to him in our time of need. Hebrews 4 goes on to say, verse 15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. You've been abandoned. You've been betrayed. You've been defrauded. You've been lied to, slandered, slapped, falsely accused. Jesus has been in your shoes. He knows what it's like. And he's able to comfort you. And bring strength to your heart. Let us therefore, verse 16, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He knows what it's like to be mad as hell at somebody. He knows. He knows what you're going through. He knows. Nobody understands. They may not, but Jesus does. He's a high priest and he's a king. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He was both a king and a priest. This is Jesus. There's ten qualities of humble leaders I'd like to share and then we'll close. A humble leader is willing to take risks. A risk-free life is a life with no leadership. With leadership, there's wisdom. With leadership, though, there's a willingness to go where no one's gone before. There's a risk. And Jesus risked it all for us. Humble leaders truly want to give authority. Jesus delegated authority to the 12, to the 70, and to others. And to us. Humble leaders know how to forgive offenses. He knows how to forgive. When you come to Him with your hurts, He's not going to remind you of your past. Oh, you poor little stepped-on child. Let me show you what you did last year. He forgives offenses. On the cross, He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. If you've become a leader, and there's people under you that have stabbed you in the back. Don't take revenge. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, God says. Exercise the power that you need with humility. Number four, humble leaders remember the value of children. They don't have the attitude, whose kid is that? Or get those kids away from me. No, they recognize the value of children because they are our future. May God help our generation to not be so self-centered on our needs that we forget, hey, we've got a future ahead of us to consider. Number five, humble leaders admire the skills of other leaders. They don't look for faults in other leaders or try to criticize other leaders or take pot shots at other leaders. 
preaching to myself today. They admire the skill that Brother Brown has. You know, the disciples one time got upset and came to Jesus and said, hey, there's some other people out here ministering. We need to put a stop to it. Jesus said, no, no. He was not against us. Let, let it be. Humble leaders know that God wants to use them. You're here on this earth for a purpose. And sometimes it might include somebody using you. And realize that ultimately, God wills that all things are done according to His purpose, according to His will, that we're conformed to the image of Jesus. And if Jesus allowed Himself to be used, who are we to say, nobody's going to use me? Humble leaders have a healthy sense of humor. We've got to be willing to laugh at ourselves, not take ourselves so seriously. Jesus was funny. Earlier in this book, they wanted to put an end to him. He said, what's the problem here? Uh, Which miracle was it that you didn't like? I thought that was funny. Great sense of humor. Without it, you won't walk in joy. Humble leaders do not resent being humbled. When we're humiliated, we can rest in the fact humiliation comes before exaltation. If you're all upset that you got passed over for a promotion, then get a job somewhere else. But don't boil in resentment and bitterness and sow in discord. Well, God's called me there. Well, if He's called you there, then stay. It's all about Him being promoted anyway. Humble leaders are willing to take the blame. They're not blame shifters. True leaders are not blame shifters. Always looking for somebody else to put the blame on. I used to work in a hotel. Hotels have what they call the front of the house and the back of the house. The back of the house were those things you don't see. The engineers, the guys that fix the toilets and the people that do the laundry and all that other stuff. The front of the house... It's the people at the front desk and the doorman and the managers and the maitre d' and all that. And if there was ever a problem with a guest, the front of the house was always blaming the back of the house. And the back of the house was always blaming the front of the house. Meanwhile, the customers aren't getting served. So it takes a true leader to stand up and say, you know what? I take the blame. Now let's do what we can. And apologize. What can we do to make it? Christ never did anything wrong, but He took the blame on the cross for us to put an end to all the world's blame shifting, which started in the Garden of Eden where the man said the woman and the woman said the devil. Actually, the man blamed God. The woman you gave me tempted me. So Christ took the blame for us. He became our sin without sinning died for us as us so that we could receive freedom from our blame and our shame. Humble leaders are willing to take the blame and humble leaders know their days are limited. John the Baptist was a great leader, led many people to the Messiah. and He said, I must decrease so that he might increase.
My whole purpose was for this guy. And it led him ultimately to his death. God allowed it to happen. Got him out of the way so that Christ could be the star. Christ knew his days were numbered. He knew his humiliation was coming. He knew the cross was coming. There's nothing any worse in the world that I can think of politically than a leader that needs to step down that won't. Look at some of your third world countries. A mess is there in because some old head won't retire. Psalm 39.4, David said, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail Well, ultimately, God is eternal and His kingdom is eternal and His authority is eternal. But as a man, Christ realized His position was temporary. He was going to die and then their glorification was going, to, was going to happen. Everything about us ultimately will be eternal, but right now it's temporary. Why hang on to everything like it's the end of the world? My life is yours to have. I give it unto you. Release from my own grasp. I give it unto you. And I rest in your hand. I rest in your hand. I rest in your hand. My life is yours. Maybe you're walking through a season of humiliation. I want to encourage you. Glorification is coming. Exaltation is coming. Don't be resentful. Hold on to the cross. You will not be destroyed. You will come through this. You will be promoted. Better days are ahead. Watch your attitude. Let the humility happen. Embrace it. He's making you a better person through it. Jesus is the humble king. The Bible calls him the king of kings. And we know that all leaders in the world can't do nothing unless God allows them. Ultimately, he is God and they are not. The Bible also says we've been made kings and priests. He's the king, capital K. We're the kings, little k. And if he's a humble king, capital K, capital H, what should lowercase h and k be? Humble king. You guys are awesome. And this year is going to have challenges that you are going to need humility, lest you be destructive with your power, and challenges that you're going to need to be bold to face, lest you not exercise your power. Don't blame fearfulness as a form of humility. That's not it at all. Moses was a bold man, but he was called the meekest man on the earth. Through the humiliation he went through, when he was given authority, he didn't abuse it. Well, there was that rock thing at the end. <laughs> but as long as he walked in meekness, he had authority. So if people are not allowing you to walk in your God-given authority, it's God's problem. 
You don't have to stomp around, man, saying, I'm the man of the house. I'm the man of the house. Oh, really? Better to say, Father, deal with your daughter-in-law. I mean, Father, deal with your daughter. God's my father and my father-in-law. Let's stand. Sing to the King who is coming.